0: Okay, so it's Tuesday morning, 8 a.m. We're here together in the German colony. A lot of traffic, people going to work, people going to school. And can you, uh, can you introduce yourself?
1: Sure. My name is Fleur Hassan Nahum. I am a city councilwoman in Jerusalem, and I'm also the leader of the Yerushalmin party. Our party is a party that uh, believes in a pluralistic Jerusalem, and we fight for it every day.
0: And where, where are we,
1: Fleur? We're on the corner of Ruth Street, intersecting with Rachel Ibenu Street. So we have Rachel, our mother, and Ruth. So two of our heroes from uh, from our heritage.
0: Ruth Street is named for Ruth the Moabite, the heroine and namesake of the biblical Book of Ruth.
1: It's actually very, very topical that we're here today because this is what we're going to read next Sunday.
0: Fleur's talking about the upcoming holiday of Shavuot when we read the Book of Ruth. And Shavuot, let me tell you, is my absolute favorite Jewish holiday of the year. In my mind, it will always be linked to my Aunt Alana's lasagnas and creamy cheesecakes, to folks in Jerusalem all dressed in white squirting water at each other, and perhaps most significantly, to kissing Ganit Grey outside our 11th grade all-night youth movement Torah study activity in 1999. But really, Shavuot is just the best. It's all about strong women, about receiving the Torah, about the wheat and barley harvest. I mean, what else could you possibly want from a Jewish holiday? And here we were, Fleur and I, standing underneath a shiny new street sign, with the name of this wondrous holiday's central figure, Ruth.
1: And we have here the sign that says Rechov Ruth. Why is this significant? It's because at the moment the sign says, Giborat Megilat Ruth Em Sabo Shel David Melech, which means uh, the hero of the book of Ruth and great-grandmother of King David. So
0: that all sounds great. A nice public recognition of a God fearing woman who, as you might recall, was the Bible's quintessential convert to Judaism. After her Israelite husband Machlon passed away, Ruth refused to part with her mother in law, Naomi. Don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you, she famously told her. Where you go, I will go, and where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people, and your God, my God, where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried." Ruth followed Naomi back to Bethlehem, where she met a man, Boaz. They got married, had a son, and started quite the illustrious lineage, which supposedly included David, Solomon, and Jesus. Ruth herself has become a feminist icon, a symbol of acceptance, of loyalty, of faith. But you might have noticed that I said that the Jerusalem street sign bearing her name was new. You see, the biographical description in the previous sign only mentioned that she was the wife of Boaz and the great-grandmother of King David.
1: In other words, the whole identity of Ruth was only based on the fact that she was the wife of somebody and the great-grandmother of somebody. And her whole heroic story was completely ignored.
0: A conscientious resident by the name of Roni Chazon Weiss pointed out this absurdity and reached out to the councilmen and women of Jerusalem.
1: We're very much a party that preserves and enhances and strengthens the rights of women in the city, especially in the public space. And so we went to the Committee on Naming Streets, and we changed the sign to Hero of the Book of Ruth and Great Grandmother of King David. But the reason why this is significant is because since then, we've decided to take this actually quite seriously. Less than 7% of street signs in the whole of Jerusalem are named after women. Out of a thousand and something, we have only 70.
0: And like a true politician, Fleur has a message for the
1: nation. I call to the public now today, please, if you have ideas and biographies of impressive women, who've contributed greatly to our people, send them in to us, and we will make sure that we put them in front of the Committee for Naming Streets.
0: Hey, I'm Mishy Harman, and this is Israel's Story. Israel's Story is brought to you by PRX, and is produced together with Tablet Magazine. You haven't heard from us for a while, mainly because we've been busy crisscrossing North America with our latest live show, Mixtape. Thanks to everyone who made this tour possible, and to the thousands and thousands of amazing fans who came to see our shows in Norfolk, Virginia, Toronto, Seattle, New York, Tenafly, Palm Beach, Princeton, and Amherst. We're already planning our return with Mixtape in the fall, so if you'd like us to come perform in your community— Contact us at livetour at israelstory.org. Okay, so we are now back for the final stretch of the season. And today we bring you our Shavuot special, Whither Thou Goest. That's the King James version of Ruth's altruistic saying, by the way. We've got three fantastic modern-day Ruth stories for you in this episode. Stories of determined women who go to the ends of the earth, following their hearts and looking for love, for family, for companionship. These stories will take us as far as Thailand, Nepal, and Macedonia, but will always, of course, bring us back home to Israel. Act 1, Tying a Knot This is a story which has, for the last several years, been a big part of my life. Much like the biblical tale of Ruth and Naomi, it's about motherhood, about going far away to stand by someone, to be there for them. And it's the story of one of the most sensitive and soulful women I know, my sister, Donna Harmon.
2: One day I'm walking around the dance class and I meet Indana and walking around.
3: Okay, so first
2: we met, right? Yeah. At the dance place. What did you say? Hi. What did I say? You say hi. That time is your last day in Nepal. And then I went home to Israel.
3: Yeah. That's my favorite 14-year-old in the world, Monisa. Monisa Guru. We met in Nepal three years ago, outside a Zumba class in a Kathmandu slum. And if that sounds random, well, a lot of things about the story I'm about to tell are It was early April, and I'd been in the country for a month, working on a story for my newspaper. The story was done, and I was leaving for Tel Aviv early that morning. But then, my flight was delayed by six hours, and just like that, I had a whole extra morning free, and no plans at all. I decided to go for a walk and headed to my favorite place in the dusty capital, the so-called Monkey Temple, perched high up on a hill. I'd come here often before, circling the temple's base and spinning the prayer wheels. That particular morning, though, instead of huffing up the steep steps to the Buddhist shrines, I wandered off into a nearby crowded neighborhood. Around me was a hum of activity. People selling mobile phone covers and bunches of parsley, incense, prayer candles, old people brushing their teeth on the sides of the road monkeys rummaging through the trash, and flea-ridden dogs lying around in the middle of the path. That's when I heard the salsa music. I followed the beat and discovered a crowded basement filled with sweaty Nepalis and spandex doing salsa moves. And, standing next to me, also peering in, were three little girls. Their obvious ringleader was this pint-sized kid in raggedy polka-dot pants and no shoes. Her name was Monisa, she said. I had vaguely been planning on going to the other side of the monkey temple, to an outdoor swimming pool I knew there. So after a few minutes at the underground Zumba class, I made some breaststroke pantomime motions to the little girls by way of explanation, and then pressed my hands together in prayer. That was goodbye. Namaste. But the girls followed me. They were sisters, they said, or I thought they said as we walked away. 11-year-old Monisa, 10-year-old Obika, and 9-year-old Obika. Wait. Wait. You have the same name in your sisters, I asked. Yes, they nodded, and they laughed, and I laughed. Anyway, with Obikan Obikan either side of me reaching up to hold my hands, we walked along. The girls seemed excited, as kids with nothing to do can be, when suddenly walking alongside a foreigner, a white one, no less. Other children with heavy book bags on their backs, who seemed to be on their way to school, yelled out, hey, where are you going? To which Monisa answered back, We're with her. I swam laps while the three sat upright on a nearby bench, watching me go back and forth and yelling out numbers. One lap, two, three. By ten, they had exhausted their knowledge of English. Eleven, they yelled out in Nepali. Afterwards, Monisa, Obika, and Obika walked me back to my guest house, a few windy dirt lanes away. I gave them some stuff I didn't need. Flip-flops, a water bottle, a duffel bag, which had been a gift from a trekking company. Monisa asked me if I had any money to give her. Or maybe she didn't ask me for money, I'm not sure. I half pretended I didn't understand. Then when I asked her where her mom was, she said, gone. Or maybe she didn't say that at all, but at the time I thought she did. Just as we were saying goodbye, I gave Monisa a slightly frayed business card, the last one in my wallet. It was a strange thing to do, I was living in Israel, and I write for an Israeli newspaper, so my card is in Hebrew, which she obviously couldn't read. She didn't read English, either. I'm not sure she actually read too well at all. But there was a phone number on the card and an email address, too, and I told Moni said that if, by chance, she and the others ever found themselves in a cyber cafe, they could ask someone to show them how to send an email, and they could get in touch if they wanted to. My new little friend thanked me and tucked the card away solemnly. We both felt, I think, a little sad to part. I snapped a photo of the three girls before I left, and on the flight home, I turned that photo into the screensaver on my mobile. That too was a strange thing to do. After all, I barely knew them. That trip to Nepal had come at the end of a tough year for me. I'd done several rounds of IVF, all of which were unsuccessful. I was feeling okay on the one hand, and then again deeply sad on the other. Regretful of roads I'd not taken, paralyzed when it came to choices I still felt I had to make, and worried I would always feel and be regarded as incomplete if I didn't have children. I had hoped that month in Nepal, which coincided with my 45th birthday, would be a time to get some energy back. I was craving space to come to terms with the fact that I was not going to be a biological mother. Over my actual birthday weekend, I left Kathmandu to join a yoga and meditation retreat at a monastery. Could I get more cliché? The vegan food was good, and the little monks playing soccer on the grounds were definitely cute. But my body hurt from sitting cross-legged for hours, and the old Tibetan monk teacher going on and on about the self bored me somehow. One evening, I snuck away from the meditation session and spent a pretty blissful hour surfing Facebook while hiding in the bathroom on the mobile phone I was supposed to have handed in, happily liking everyone's birthday wishes to me. A five-day trek in the rainy Annapurna Mountains at the end of the Nepal trip didn't get me anywhere either. Unlike most trekkers who wax poetic about their Sherpa guides, mine drove me crazy. He had all these silly gag jokes like he kept pretending to tumble over the side of the cliff and he asked me if I could schlep his sleeping bag because he had no more room in his rucksack. I would say that I spent most of my hiking hours calculating how long it had been since I'd last looked at my watch. Back in Tel Aviv after it was all over, sipping a cafe lait in my neighborhood cafe, it was clear to me that despite the weeks I'd been away, the loop of questions going round and round in my head about motherhood and happiness hadn't gone anywhere at all. Was it time to give up on being a mother? Exactly a week to the day after I met Monisa and her two Obika sidekicks and returned home, a 7.8 magnitude earthquake shook Nepal. This is
0: the moment the earthquake struck. The earthquake in Nepal. After a devastating
3: natural disaster. There was an earthquake, guys.
4: It was an earthquake.
3: Whole villages were wiped out. Thousands of schools and hospitals were destroyed. Millions were left homeless, and over 8,000 people were killed. And that's when she started calling. I remember the first time I saw the Nepal country code flash up on my mobile and heard this tiny, faraway voice on the other end of the line. It didn't seem real, but it was. The local phone companies had given everyone in Nepal unlimited free calls in the weeks following the earthquake, in the somewhat futile hope that if someone was buried in the rubble but didn't have any phone credit, they might yet be able to save themselves with a free call for help. Monisa took advantage and, using a neighbor's mobile one time and a relative's another, would ring me. She always seemed to want to stay on the line and chat, but we couldn't communicate much. I understood that Gorka, her family village in the countryside, had been at the epicenter of the quake and was broken, as she put it. The rented room she'd been shacked up in with her cousins in Kathmandu was also broken. I would ask her if it was raining. It always was. If school was open. It wasn't and if she was even registered at school. Unclear. Then, when we ran out of things to say, I would tell her not to be scared and that everything would be okay. I also told her that I would help. Though, of course, I had no idea how I could actually do that. The daydreams started hazily, drifting in and out of my head. Then they began to take on a shape and intensity of their own. Maybe it was fate, I thought to myself. Maybe I was meant to connect with Monisa and her sisters. They needed me right now and I needed them. My imagination started running wild. What if, what if I could adopt all three and bring them back to Israel? I could turn my extra room into a kid's room, enroll them in the day school up the road where my friend Anat sends her kids. I would take them to the same swimming class as my sister-in-law takes my niece over at the Gordon pool. I would drive them back to my parents for Friday night dinners, and I would read them books before they went to sleep. I didn't tell anyone what was going on in my head. I was embarrassed. Of course, I knew better than to think that one can just go to a poor, foreign country hit by natural disaster and simply scoop up a needy kid. I'd been a journalist for over 20 years and had traveled the world—Africa, South America, and wars in Afghanistan, Iraq—I'd seen a lot of kids in need over the years. Orphaned kids, starving kids, lost kids. Sometimes I would write an article about them, and sometimes I would snap a photo. My heart would always ache a little, or a lot, but either way I would always say goodbye. But this time, something felt different. My dreams about Monisa just wouldn't go away. Nepal is far away, and there was no easy or inexpensive way for me to get back there. My editors had already sent someone else to cover the aftermath of the earthquake and had assignments for me in Israel. And I'd been planning to move to London to live with my boyfriend Josh. So there was all that, as well as the more mundane to-do list involving already paid for Pilates classes, dinner plans, car stuff, health stuff, a life in brief. So it was not surprising that a lot of people raised their eyebrows when I announced that I was taking time off and flying back to Kathmandu. I felt the need to explain myself, which was hard to do. My mom couldn't fathom why I would want to go to a country just as all the foreigners were trying to flee and aftershocks were ongoing. That, and she could also probably sense that I'd built up unspoken expectations about Monisa. Maybe she didn't want me to get hurt. My dad pointed out that there were hundreds of thousands of children who needed help in Nepal, and that NGOs and UN bodies who supposedly know what to do in this kind of crisis were already on the ground. What exactly did I think I was gonna be able to do, he asked gently. All this I heard and set off. Back in battered Kathmandu, a mere two and a half weeks after I'd left it, neither the city nor the story I'd written up in my head about the girls ended up being as expected. It was like some dystopian movie where buildings and temples you know should be on this block or that corner are just gone, reduced to heaps of concrete and metal. There were bedraggled families wandering the roads, still looking for friends and relatives, trying to find shelter. The rain was pouring nonstop, and all those once-sleepy dogs were howling endlessly. And the girls? The two younger ones, the suspiciously identically named Obika and Obika, were not in the capital anymore, having fled back to their ancestral villages in the countryside. And it turns out they were not sisters, just neighbors. I should have known. Monisa, though, she was right there. And she actually did have a sister, but an older one, Monica, a stranger to me. My ideas about Monisa and who she was and what I could be to her needed to be further readjusted when it turned out that not only did she have a sister, but she had parents, too. There was Dad, an ex-soldier who seemed jovial to me and who was the one who had brought the girls to the city when he came there looking for work, and Mom a small young woman, years younger than her husband, who tended the family plot of land in Gorka, and who'd given birth to Monica and Monisa when she herself was a mere child. The whole family, together with hundreds of others in the slum who'd lost their homes, were camped out in the pouring rain on a basketball court, amidst the rubble of a collapsed school. Monisa seemed far more subdued when I saw her after the quake. Her eyes bloodshot from lack of sleep, and her jet black, shiny hair was matted. All the family's meager possessions were buried under rubble, and the winds had blown away a makeshift tent they had received from an aid organization. There was no electricity, no running water, and little to eat. Traumatized by the earthquake, kids would start screaming when they felt even the slightest aftershock. Maybe I had misunderstood when Monisa told me her mother was gone. Or maybe Monisa wanted something from me, be it money or love as much as I'd wanted something from her, and so had created that misunderstanding on purpose. Whatever the case, if anything was now clear, it was that this little girl I'd been secretly daydreaming of adopting didn't need a mom. What she needed was a new tent, and maybe some rice and beans and a camping stove. Okay, I thought, I could help with that. I stayed in Kathmandu for a month that time, playing a role that fell somewhere between camp counselor, cash machine, and a one-woman non-governmental emergency aid organization. Or rather, that's probably how it looked from the outside. To me, and I want to think to Manisa and her sister too, it felt like a version of falling in love. We spent a lot of every day together having mini-adventures in the collapsed city and finding more and more to make us happy despite the tragedy. We climbed around the city's temples, many of them destroyed by the quake, so that the girls could light candles and make pujas, or prayers, for the earth to stop shaking. We stood in a long line for a new tent for them to sleep under, and then, when that one blew away too, set out to get another one. We went to a bookstore and chose some books, and as schools began reopening, I began to push for them to find somewhere to study. Monica spent days preparing for the entrance exam for one school, which she then failed, miserably. I wanted to let her down gently, but Monica told her straight out that she only got seven points out of a hundred, leading to a torrent of tears. On a Skype call from London, Josh's then nine-year-old son Noah tried to cheer her up. Math is impossible, he insisted. He too was terrible at geography, he added. We looked into another school where the headmaster ran away with our deposit. And then, finally, after some of my Nepali friends who knew what they were doing got involved, we found the right place. I bought Monisa glasses so she could see the blackboard. Soon, with their mom's blessing, the girls started staying over on the spare bed in my hostel. At night, after playing on my laptop, they would put on the free eye masks I'd gotten from Turkish Airlines and fall immediately into a deep sleep. Nothing seemed to rouse them. Not dogs barking, roosters making a racket, thunder and lightning, nothing. In the mornings I made them brush their teeth and then would take them out, together with their mom sometimes or a friend, for breakfast. Fried bread and milky sweet tea, boiled vegetables and a steaming plate of buffalo momos, or dumplings, which they slurped down with wildly hot sauce. Every day we walked over to the mall to see if the movie theater on its second floor had reopened yet. When it finally did, we got tickets to see the only film playing. It was The Avengers in 3D. None of us could understand the first thing about the plot. And the girls, overexcited by the combination of their first time in the theater, the superheroes flying straight at them, and an overdose of cotton candy, fell asleep within minutes. When the local swimming pool reopened, I bought the girls a membership and tried to teach them the breaststroke. And then we whiled away many afternoons, splashing around the shallow end with a group of young Tibetan nuns in training. That's probably the most lasting image I have from that trip. Monisa, holding hands with a pint-sized girl with a shaved head, both of them wearing ill-fitted bathing suits, goggles askew, laughing so hard I worried they might drown.
2: What's the name of your school? Kathmandu Valley High Secondary School. In Sakrapat. <laughs> Very good. Yeah. And how is that school? It's a good one? Yes. That school is so good. Big uh, ground, basketball also, swimming pool also. Yeah. <laughs> and what is your good subject? What are you good at at school? Uh, dancing. <laughs> dancing a lot. I, l- I love dancing. I fast in dance. You're number one in dancing? No way. Yeah. Really? Yeah. What kind of dancing? Traditional dancing? Disco dancing? Yeah, traditional. Traditional.
3: It's now three years later and my birthday again, 48 this time, and I'm back in Nepal. It's my fourth trip back here. It's not that I love being in Kathmandu so much, to be honest. It can be hard going. The potholed roads are clogged with honking cars and motorcycles all of them leaving clouds of black exhaust in their wake. It's hot, dust swirls in the air, and it's rare to see blue sky at this time of the year. Even the novelty of the monkeys who roam wild has long worn off. But there's a girl here I love, and I'm here because of her. This year I came to visit with Josh and his son, and the whole group of us went rafting down the Trishuli River, together with Susma, the girl's mother. That was a big hit. To celebrate my birthday, we drove out to Gorka, which is finally showing signs of bouncing back after the quake. We threw a makeshift party with Monisa's extended family. We actually picked them up, aunts, uncles, cousins, all 21 of them, in our minivan to get to the venue. It was like a circus trick. We spent the evening eating dalbat or rice with beans with our hands, as is customary, and toasting each other with homemade alcohol provided by their grandma. Monisa was in charge of the DJing. Meanwhile, at the Kathmandu Valley Boarding School, where the girls now study and live, Monica has just graduated 10th grade. She was given the Best Athlete Award in the the end-of-the-year ceremony. Monisa, after repeating year 7, is struggling along. Academics have proved a little hard for her. This year, she came in at the bottom of her class again. So Josh, the girl's mom, and I gathered together in the principal's room on parent-teacher day to discuss a plan of action— There was Susma, wearing her best dress and clutching the little handbag I'd given her, and me wearing a little string necklace with a bean lace through it that Susma had given me. All of us trying to figure out what to do. No big deal, Josh and I try and tell Monisa, who's slumped down on a stool holding back tears. I feel Susma might cry too. Look at the bright side, I suggest. Monisa's not bad in math, she's a star on the school's dance team, and she has sweet friends. She's eating properly at school and has gained weight since I met her. She looks pretty and healthy. Josh is all about finding a tutor to help with some private classes. Susma is worried we'll stop paying for school if Monisa can't keep up. We assure her that won't happen. It'll work out, we say. And so it will. For a while, I thought about getting Monisa and Monica to come visit me in Israel. I managed to organize passports for them.
2: Did you have a passport? Yes, I have a passport. And when can you come visit me? Mm, after... <laughs> no idea. Me? No idea yes. either. Yeah.
3: But then got stumped by the visa process.
2: Yeah, yes. we need to get a visa. Visa, yeah. Yeah. So difficult, no? Very difficult. Yeah, that's why. But I hope someday you're going to yeah. come visit me. Yes, really. That would be very nice, Yes, huh? very nice. Very nice. <laughs> <That day> is- <laughs> Meantime, though, I can come visit you here.
3: Yeah. Monisa's dad left Nepal soon after the earthquake, setting off to Malaysia to find work as a laborer. He doesn't send any money back home, which is hard and unusual. Susma left the village and moved to Kathmandu, where she found a job cutting chicken in a small market stall. She can now afford to rent a small room, which she shares with a rotating cast of relatives and even has a little money to spare. I don't want and can't afford for Monisa's family to think of me as a bank. But the little Josh and I do send seems to go such a long way, it never fails to astonish me. We wire about $4,000 a year to the boarding school, and then provide the girls with some extra cash to cover things like school uniforms and books, underwear, toothbrushes, sheets, pillows. That's it. I try to get the girls to write me letters, but they don't. Instead, they send me Facebook messages from the internet cafe or from their mom's mobile when they're back in Kathmandu during holidays. Sometimes I call the mobile phone of Doma Lama, who's the house mother at their school. Monisa and Monica, who know to expect my call, stand by. The conversations are still somewhat limited, but are improving, along with Monisa's English. If she's sick, she coughs into the phone to illustrate. If she makes a new friend, she describes her. Or if someone's mean to her, she tells me that, too. We send each other lots of air kisses, and sometimes we just stay on the line, not saying too much at all, until Doma Lama asks for her mobile back. Missing you very much, Monisa will say, her syntax still a little wonky. I miss you too, I tell her. And I do. I could have bumped into a thousand different kids that day in the slum. One of Monisa and Monica's neighbors, a spunky little girl with a nose ring, asked me once, Why them? Another kid informed me that Monisa's not special. She's not even good at school. There is no rhyme or reason to why it was Monisa. Maybe there is some fate involved, as I once thought. More probably, it's just random. Our lives and stories intertwined for a moment. And then, because that moment happened to be exactly right for each of us independently, we tied a knot.
2: What does it feel like when we have to say goodbye? Sad, so sad. You think we're going to see each other again? Oh, uh, Another year? Another year? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I hope so. Yeah, I hope so. Today is so not good. <laughs>
3: My heart hurts
2: a yeah. little. You too? Yeah. Bad day. <laughs> Bad day.
0: Dana Harmon. Dana's a journalist for Haaretz. This episode is brought to you with the generous support of the Charles and Lynn Schusterman Family Foundation, a global organization that seeks to ignite the passion and unleash the power in young people to repair the world. For over 30 years, Schusterman has been supporting inspiring organizations and passionate individuals who are improving public education in the United States, strengthening Israel and the Jewish people, building communities grounded in inclusion and equality, and working to ensure children grow up free from abuse and neglect. Learn more about the Schusterman Foundation at schusterman.org. Now, I'm only 34, but I got my first cell phone when I was in the Army. And if you too grew up before the cell phone era, or BCE, as some of our younger listeners might think of it, you'll remember what it was like to actually have to wait in one place for someone to call. This could be really frustrating, and never more so than when it came to the dating world. Because you'd wait around endlessly for a phone call which you didn't even know for sure was coming. In some ways, that feels like talking about the Dark Ages. But in others, especially to me, it feels like talking about a lost Eden. You see, today... With all the countless dating apps, Tinder, Bumble, jswipe and the list goes on, people are in this frantic holding pattern all the time. Every ping, every vibration could be a message from the one. It's exhausting. Our next act is a story of dating in the smartphone age. Judah Kaufman tells us how one woman from Tel Aviv had to decide between listening to all of her human instincts or trusting an algorithm. Act Two, Love in Translation. Our story starts with the classic millennial quarter-life crisis.
5: It was after I quit my job. I felt like I needed something to look forward to.
6: That's her own Torten. She's 24, lives in Tel Aviv.
5: I study philosophy. I used to be an LGBT activist. I still kinda see myself as an activist but just postponing it for a little bit.
6: That postponing took the form of a big backpacking trip across the Balkans.
5: Slovenia, Croatia, Macedonia,
6: and Bulgaria. So, Sharon set off. She was seeing new places, clearing her head. Everything was going according to plan. That is, until she got to Macedonia. There, she did what a lot of young people do to get a more intimate knowledge of a new place. She opened up Tinder.
5: Not for anything like... Yeah, sexual is nice, but that's not the thing. The thing is, um, I wanted to find someone local that I can speak to about the experience of living in this place that I am.
6: Sharon swiped and swiped.
5: To be honest, like 70% of the people I see on Tinder, I swap left.
6: Left swiping on Tinder means you don't want to talk to that person. And things progressed as usual for Sharon. Left, 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 until. Wow, <laughs> she is, she's gorgeous.
5: One of the most beautiful women I've ever seen. She has, like, large brown eyes, and her skin is, like, flawless. I swept right. And then we had a match, surprisingly.
6: Sharon and her match, Kansu, started messaging. They covered all the small talky questions you'd expect. Sharon said she was traveling from Israel. Kansu said she was a student from Turkey.
5: She was super nice, like overly nice.
6: And they ended up making a plan for Kansu to join Sharon and some of her friends at a pub the next night.
5: It was like a traditional Eastern European restaurant. The wooden walls and everything was it was really cozy and we sat by the fireplace so it was even more cozy.
6: Sharon and her friends arrived a bit early. They were drinking, hanging out and then the door opened.
5: When she came in, I looked at her and uh, she looked at me but she Kind of uh, also looked away. I think she was really shy.
6: But, like lots of people discover, after sitting in a pub for long enough, initial shyness can melt away. Soon, Sharon and Kansu were laughing, passing phones back and forth, and scrolling through travel pictures. The evening progressed. Their group eventually left the bar, everyone went bowling, there was even a stolen smooch in the corner of the alley. By 10, most of the group had peeled off, and Sharon found herself at Kansu's kitchen table, sipping from a freshly brewed cup of coffee.
5: Turkish coffee, which is the best.
6: <laughs> it was a bittersweet moment. At the stroke of midnight, the glass slippers would disappear, and Sharon's overnight bus to Bulgaria would pull out of the station, a proverbial pumpkin carriage if there ever was one.
5: And then she told me, don't go. And I was like, "How? how can I not go? I mean, um... I told my friends in Sofia that I'm coming, and I already bought the bus tickets. It's not possible not to go. But then she said again, don't go. And every time she said don't go, I was like, I don't want to go. I know I don't want to go.
6: So Sharon made a deal with herself. She'd stay the night, but be on the first bus out the next morning. 7 a.m. sharp. Did you leave at 7? Of course not. (laughs) (laughs) Sharon stayed for a day and a night. A one-night stand became a two-night stand. And at this point, I want to say the two days turned into a week and then another. To tell you about their old t-shirts and books and hair elastics mixing together. The bric-a-brac of two separate lives swirling into one. But it didn't happen like that. There was still this one obstacle in their way. We couldn't really speak because we had no common language whatsoever. See, Sharon speaks Hebrew and English. Kansu, Turkish, and Macedonian. And all of their communications had been mediated by the slow passing back and forth of a smartphone open to Google Translate. Sharon remembers the first time she tried it.
5: I wrote, you look really beautiful. And I wrote it in English and I translated it to Turkish. And then I showed her the the phone and she had the shyest smile I've ever seen, but, uh, but I
6: saw that she was really happy. That might seem like shaky ground to build a connection on, But Sharon doesn't think so.
5: There is so much things that we can gain just by deciding to listen. Not to words, but to the way people say things, or the way they look at us. So from some perspectives, you can say we're not as close. From other perspectives, you can say we're closer, because we must listen.
6: For two magical days, Sharon and Kansu told each other everything and said nothing. They knew that soon enough they'd have to go back to real life and find a way to Google Translate goodbye.
5: When I left, eventually, to go to Sofia, I wrote her this letter and I wrote that leaving her bed this morning was one of the hardest things I've had to do. I didn't think we were gonna last. I mean, it was too crazy. But um, when I came to Israel, she started asking me, okay, so when are you coming back to Macedonia? And I was like, oh, Well, good question.
6: The answer? A whole three weeks later.
5: I came back to Macedonia and we were there for a month.
6: And, like a lot of relationships, as the butterflies quieted and the connection deepened, it also got more complicated.
5: The whole month we were not only in Macedonia, we also went to Turkey to meet her family.
6: Kansu had grown up in a religious Muslim family in a small Turkish village. Being gay and out wasn't a viable option. So when she and Sharon visited, we had this cover story. They said Sharon was also a student in Macedonia, that they were neighbors and had decided to travel together. But for Sharon, a Tel Aviv LGBT activist, keeping up this story, going back into the closet like that was no easy task. And the trip brought up some of her own baggage as well.
5: Everyone told me, what the fuck are you doing? This is crazy. It's Turkey. It's a Muslim country. And not only that it's a Muslim country that you're going to, not like Istanbul or a place where it's easy to find you, but this like tiny village in the edge of Turkey, it can go really badly. And she told me, I'll never forget this. She told me, you know, if you believe them, then you believe what they're saying about me. And when she told me this, I was like, oh shit, (laughs) because it's true. Uh, Because if all Muslims are like this, then it's also about her and about her family, about her friends. It was, yeah, it was really hard.
6: Even with everything in their way, different religions, enemy countries, language barriers, really, Sharon and Kansu are just working through the exact same questions as every other couple on earth. How can we communicate better? How can we know each other more deeply? And they're committed to finding an answer, together.
5: I am willing to go wherever she goes. And um, we also, we have a lot of dreams because I think this whole uh, experience has made us both uh, believe that we can do whatever we want.
6: And in those dreams, are, are you talking the same language?
5: In these dreams, we have our own language that only us understand.
6: In fact, those dreams are becoming a reality. The morning after Sharon and I spoke, she boarded a plane. She had a suitcase, a one-way ticket to Macedonia, and no plans on coming back. From the outside, Sharon and Kansu's story can seem like one of distances and gaps. At its center, though, there's a single relationship. And beyond that, Sets of families and friends and countries pushed apart by historical accidents and follies. Now, drawn closer. All because of a love knitted together by translation algorithms, coded across rolling continents and frothy oceans in Californian suburbs, half a world away. And in those suburbs, servers that shoot back the translated love notes up and up through the clouds and the gases and the black, to the blinking satellites in the starry beyond. And all that, that's not a story of distances.
0: That's a story of coming together. Judah Kaufman. Judah is finishing up his internship here at Israel Story. And this is an excellent opportunity to remind you all about our five-month-long internship program. Applications for the fall cohort open in mid-June, So make sure to check our website and social media pages and spread the word. Okay, so we've got one final story for you today. And I'm pretty sure that if the biblical authors would have known about Susie Doring-Preston and Tirzayal, the two women you're about to hear in our next piece, we wouldn't be reading the book of Ruth on Shavuot. But rather, the book of Susie. When we went to interview these two women... We found them sitting on an off-white couch, holding hands. Tirtza and her husband Moshe live in Maskeret Batya, a sleepy town near Rehovot. Susie, on the other hand, is from very far away.
7: I'm from Tulsa, Oklahoma, and I've been in Israel for 13 years.
0: Federica Sasso will tell us how and why this freckled Tulsan ended up on that couch holding hands with someone who might as well be her mother. Act 3, A Biblical Bond.
7: The story begins at the Bubbles nightclub in Thailand.
8: It's 2003, and Susie, who had just graduated college, was a member of the Peace Corps.
7: And I was stationed up north, and we were in Chiang Mai, which was amazing, because you get to eat mangoes all day and sit in the jungle and... I discovered post-Army
8: Israelis. It was very easy to spot them, Susie says.
7: Curly-haired, sun-kissed, guys wearing only tie, like tank tops and tie pants. Always having a good time, super confident.
8: So one night, she was at this club with a bunch of other Peace Corps volunteers.
7: And it was like loud music. It was horrible. It was shitty drinks. It was gross and sweaty, but everyone went and partied until, like, 3 in the morning.
8: And it was in that uber-romantic setting that Susie first laid her eyes on a skinny, handsome, and tan Israeli. Tiki and I just hit it off immediately.
7: He asked what I was doing in Thailand, and I was like, well, I'm a teacher. And he's like, well, you don't look like a teacher. And I was like, well, you don't look very Jewish. So... And we just started dancing or something. I don't know. I was just like, what does that mean? I don't look like a teacher. Did you kiss that night? I don't know. We're so conservative. Yes. Yes. I don't know. We probably did something, right? We were like 23 and 22. A few days later, Susie
8: got an email from Ziki.
7: Saying like, I have to see you again. I'm going to come visit you. And I was like, this male is very forward, but he was really fun. So I invited him to my village and he showed up. And
8: that was it. That's how I met Tsiki Ayal. Seemingly, Ocean set them apart. tsiki had been a tank commander in the IDF and was now in the middle of his big post-army trip. During that exact same time, Susie had been an undergrad at the University of Tulsa. He was Jewish. She was Christian.
7: Well, I was baptized Lutheran because my dad requested that we were baptized Lutheran, but my mom is a devout Filipino Catholic, so we were raised in the Catholic Church.
8: Susie basically knew nothing about Israel. Like, I just
7: assumed it was this dusty old Middle Eastern country that no one would want to go
8: visit. Whereas Tziki, on the other hand, was a big Zionist.
7: He was very passionate about me knowing Israel, knowing Judaism. You know, when we spoke of our future together and what was possible, he was always very much like, yeah, but we have to go back to Israel. Israel needs people like us. That's right.
8: It didn't take long before this Thailand flank turned serious and they began talking about sharing a life together.
7: There was a lot of chemistry. I think that's when you kind of know you met someone who was going to change your life forever because it was really this instant chemistry and this instant passion and this instant willing to, like, figure out how to make it
8: work. And they did. Long distance. See, shortly after they met, Tsiki came back home to Israel and began studying management and behavioral sciences at Ben-Gurion University in the Negev. Here's his mom,
9: Tirza. He was a
8: very, very good student. And in the meantime, half a globe away, Susie kept on teaching English in her small Thai village. But their love for each other, it just grew stronger and stronger
7: by the day. We kept like video diaries, and then every seven days we would send and put on a CD-ROM.
8: After a few months of this proto-vlogging, Susie came to visit Ziki in Israel. He's like, you must see everywhere in Israel.
7: He took your little car from Beersheba to Haifa, meeting all of his army friends, the Dead Sea, everywhere. Like, I had to do everything. I had to eat shawarma, I had to have falafel, I had to have bamba every day. He was like, this is what we're doing, let me show you Israel, you know? I was like, all right.
8: Susie had a great time in Israel, but even more so, she had a great time with Ziki.
7: He's like always thinking of like the next big thing, you know. He was like very happy, very in touch with his emotions. He was always happy to just hang out. He's really laid back. It was refreshing.
8: Dirza and Moshe, Tsiki's parents, were surprisingly welcoming of this non-Jewish girl from Oklahoma.
9: I know Tziki, if he picked Susie, so everything is okay.
8: Susie actually remembers a bit more pressure.
7: Tita turns to me when I first meet her, and she's like, family is everything.
8: I was like, okay, I don't know what that means. She, family is everything. Back in Oklahoma, Susie's family also had some adjusting to do.
7: My father was a German-born older guy. He grew up in World War II Berlin. So I asked him, I was like, how do you feel about uh, me meeting an Israeli? And he's like, Susie, I don't care. Just bring me grandchildren. When I came to Israel to visit, my dad called and wanted to speak to Tiki. And Tiki, like, holds a phone away from him. And he's like, your father keeps trying to speak Yiddish to me, but I don't speak Yiddish. (laughs) But I guess my dad was like, you're Jewish. Doesn't everyone
8: speak Yiddish? Soon after she returned to Thailand from her visit in Israel, Susie received a phone call from Oklahoma. They just said,
7: like, you need to get on a plane. Your dad's had a heart attack. He died a few hours later. Then I went to Oklahoma. Me and my brother, like, cared for our mom that month
8: and helped her sort things out. And Tziki, from faraway Israel, was Susie's rock.
7: I just remember him talking about Moshe and that he could never imagine losing his
4: father, because his father meant so much to him.
7: And, And I just remember being mad at him, and telling him, like, well, at least you're the lucky one, and you have your father. And he's like, I know, and I'm so sorry. And I think I even said in that conversation, like, how could you not know what it's like to lose anyone you're from Israel, you know? And he's like, I know, but I, I don't, and I'm sorry. I don't think I will ever forget that
2: conversation.
8: Susie eventually returned to Thailand, to the village, to her teaching. And Tsiky continued to be there for her, on Skype, over the phone, in letters. Passover break came in the middle of his second semester at university. But he didn't go visit Susie, and he didn't go home. Instead, he went to Milouin, reserve duty.
9: I was uh, the one who took him to the bus. And he told me that it's not dangerous at all. And uh, we hugged. And uh, I was so calm. I was uh, so confident that he will come back. I didn't think at all that something like that can happen to him. I was so confident. I don't know why I was so confident.
8: On April 25, 2005, two nights after the Passover Seder, Tsiki was manning a checkpoint outside of Hebron. A Palestinian taxi driver stopped at the checkpoint and then accelerated, ramming into Tsiki.
9: He fell down, and when he came up, he, he took a
8: bullet. Tsiki was killed on the spot by friendly fire from one of his teammates, trying to stop the driver. Tirza and Moshe were vacationing in the north when they were notified.
9: And uh, they told me that uh, Ziki. that's what I uh, heard, Ziki. And I told them, go away. I don't want to see you. Go away. And that's what I remember.
7: I was at a Peace Corps conference in Bangkok. I think we were doing some team building stuff. I remember because like, they asked a question like, you know, what are the things that you think about the most every day? And I just wrote Tiki, and then I sat back down. Um, when we were at the hotel, and I hadn't heard from Tiki that day, and then my phone rang and I answered it without even saying hello. I was just like, there you are. I've been waiting for you to call all day, and then there was a pause on the other end, and it was uh, Nadav, Tiki's best friend. He's like, "Susie, you need to sit down." And I was like, "What are you talking about? When I need to sit down." And he's like, "I don't even." I was like, "Tiki's." All I know is that I threw the phone, and I just fell to the ground, clawing at the walls, asking someone to help me. And I hid under the bathroom sink, like rocking myself. And then I was like, I gotta go. I gotta get on a plane. I gotta go.
8: Susie didn't make it in time for Tsiki's funeral, but showed up at Tirza and Moshe's home in Maskeret Batya.
7: I will never forget when I walk in to the Shiva house. You're on this couch here, you know? You start wailing, what a beautiful bride you would have been.
9: It was so, so hard. And many people, how oh, many people are Yeah,
7: I come and I lay on your lap and you just like stroke me. And it was like, and you don't even know what to do.
8: Susie stayed for the entire Shiva. And when it was over, she couldn't bring herself to get back on a plane to Thailand. She couldn't leave Tirza and Moshe, and, really, she couldn't leave Tsiki.
7: When Tsiki died, like, I didn't think I would be able to function ever again. I didn't know what was going to happen to me. I actually assumed that I would die from grief. I didn't think I could survive. So, not really knowing what else to do, she stayed. I mean, I stayed in Maskerabatia because it was safe for me. And it was a very warm and loving place. The way Susie saw it,
8: this was what she and Siki had always wanted.
7: We had a plan for our life together, which was to go to school, get married, live in Israel, ultimately. And I figured that I would stick to that plan until I learned something different. I didn't know. I was like, this is a plan I had for my life. Do I go home or do I stay here?
9: So... She was uh, with us and uh, I felt that I I was responsible for her and um, I asked her if uh, she really uh, wants to stay in Israel and um, every time I asked her, she says, yes, I want to stay. Susie, the 24
8: year old, half German, half Filipino, Catholic from Talsa, notified the Peace Corps that she wasn't coming back. And instead, she moved in with Tirs and Moshe. She lived with them for a whole year, sleeping in Siki's bedroom, eating dinners together, becoming family.
7: I think grief attached us.
9: Yeah, sure.
7: Like, I mean, we were in despair for a long time together.
9: It was too hard for us. Yeah,
7: I mean, I think it's hard for us because in many ways, I'm probably a symbol of what Tiki isn't, you know? I started Opan and I didn't know how to read or write. So Tirza sat with me at the table every night and taught me my Aleph Bet.
8: But it didn't stop at learning Hebrew. Tziki and Susie had talked about her converting to Judaism. And now, even though he was gone, Susie decided to go ahead with a plan.
7: My entire life fell apart. Like, the man of my past died, the man of my future died. I was suspended in the middle of the universe. And Judaism creates a relationship with everything you do. Like from waking up in the morning to what you're eating to how to view the world. If you have a question about ethics, you can rebuild your world.
8: In Judaism, Susie found some solace. Things fell into place for her.
7: I guess I put it this way. Sometimes the universe opens up and if you keep saying yes or why not, it leads you to places you can't imagine. Like, I think I've always been a religious person. Um, It's just that I never found growing up a religion that made sense to me and then Judaism makes absolute sense and it was very comfortable for me. Susie converted.
8: She could have easily closed this painful chapter of her life and moved on. But instead, she chose to embrace Israel. It's a nation full of people
7: who have learned to live with their grief and move forward and it was the only place where I could heal the way I needed to heal.
8: Tsiki and Tirza's home became her home. Their land, her land. Their religion, her religion. But Tirza didn't want their calamity, their tragedy to govern her life. Though she cherished Susie's company, Tirza started prodding her to move on, to live.
9: Every time I uh, asked you to meet uh, people, to, to have a boyfriend, not to uh, remain uh, alone. No, I will stay with you. I told her, no, I don't want you to be with me. I want you to have a family. You have to, to raise a family. She would be like in her bed after like hours of crying.
7: <laughs>
8: I need to speak to you. I need you to move on. And slowly, slowly, Susie did just that. At Ulpan, she met David, a new immigrant from London. They became friends and ultimately lovers. Three years after Tsiki was killed, Susie got married. Moshe, Tsiki's dad, walked her down the aisle.
9: I remember the day I couldn't be very close because it was too hard for me. I cried in the corner, but afterwards, uh, I think I was okay.
5: You cried for two weeks before.
9: But I I think we didn't see that I cried during the wedding. Of course we did.
7: I found a a great partner and husband and... Tsiki's definitely a presence in our life. You know, we have his photo next to the Shabbat candles next to my father. I know that David is very aware that his life, well, he never met Tsiki. It was everything that he has is because of him. You know, we have a wonderful life now as well, you know, and I think it's a great gift that I'm still able to share that experience with the Yal family and they can partake in it. It's not perfect, but it's ours, you know?
8: Susie and David have three children who call Sikh's parents Saba Moshe and Safta They visit them often and stay over for Shabbat at least once a month.
9: We are so pleased that you raised a very good uh, uh, family. And uh, I'm so pleased to see that uh, you educate very nice your children. Tinta said
7: on Yom um, Haidzikogon this year, she's like, Susie,
9: I'm so glad you married and had children. I'm very happy for you, really.
8: Mothers-in-law and daughters-in-law often have complicated relationships. And that's not even exactly what Susie and Tirza are to each other. After all, Susie has a mother-in-law, David's mom. But there's something biblical about the bond between these two women sitting on the couch holding hands. It's raw and loving, painful and tragic, and
9: hopeful.
7: It's unconventional, but I think that... uh it's our normal now, you know? It's just our lives. It's who we are, right? Like it's unfortunate that life happens the way it does, but I think we learn to live alongside it and make the best of what we have. Do you want to add anything?
9: Sometimes I I feel like I'm not, Living in this world, you know. But I, I say to myself, I have to, to live for. For my
7: family. I also need you guys a lot. Like I think you and Moshe are also my rock.
9: I'm still living for you too.
0: Federica Sasso. As you might have noticed from her accent, Federica's Italian. She's a print and radio journalist living in Jerusalem. This story was produced together with Abby Nushatz, And that's our Shavuot episode, our three very different modern-day Ruth stories. As always, you can catch up on all our past episodes, in both English and Hebrew, on our site, on iTunes, and on any of the other main podcast platforms. Also, in the spirit of the holiday's agricultural origins, Think for a sec about Israel's story as a flower. And if you want to help us grow, the way you can water us is pretty simple. All you have to do really is go to iTunes, rate us, and write a review. That's it. You can also follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, all under Israel's story. And if you want to sponsor episodes of Israel's story, drop us a line at sponsor at PRX Org. Thanks to Yael Scherer, Ronnie Chazon Weiss, Ariela Matar, Susma Gurung, Josh and Noah Berger, Doma Lama, Micha Odenheimer, David Friedlander, Yeshi Lama, Ethan Cohen, and to Shara Griffenhagen Ellenbogen, who pitched us Susie and Tirza's story. Thanks, as always, also to Esther Werdiger and Wayne Hoffman from Tablet Magazine. Ora Lewis created the stunning original artwork for this episode. You can find a link to her work on our website. The original music in today's show was written and performed by our one and only in-house Mozart, Ari Wenig. Julie Subrin edited the episode, Ben Wallach in Jerusalem and Paul Ruest in New York recorded it, and Sela Weissblum mixed it all up. Israel Story is brought to you by PRX, the public radio exchange, and is produced in partnership with Tablet Magazine. Our staff includes Yochai Metal, Shai Satran, Maya Kosove, Roy Gilron, Zev Levi, Ari Wenig, Hannah Barg, Rotemtsin, Judah Kaufman, and Abby Nushatz. I'm Mishi Harman, and we'll be back very soon, very soon indeed, with our first ever mini-series. So till then, Shalom Shalom, Chag Sameach, eat a lot of cheesecake, and yalla bye.
4: Diafou ya mindi sliha we khassem we telkhiba sadek we telkhibo kahelak hatta ou marsou ou marsouf ka fraqlek Idkeruch vet intact kirata. O matar yasigeh, badat ti potav ha dofeket. Ak te fai chazet, savarech vero shek raana. Vetelchibasate harato, veirchave Kao, veshulev ana. (tries) Shell Hatelem Nashon, Veragoa, Birei Hadvarim tarle hol at ta bassat levadet lo nitravet belat asrefot badrachi ke samrum ei ma u midan u faya shir levam shufti ana va nikmat ka ahad al بصا دال و